Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 43. And I have a little bit of news. We're going to change some things up on you guys with the Marty Smith's America podcast. The bosses say they'd like a little bit more of me and not quite so much uh, from other people, at least other people really driving the narrative of the podcast. They want me to do that. And, you know, because granted, they enjoy the interviews that Travis and I get, but they want me to inject more of my own thoughts into the piece each week. We'll still interview folks. Like today, we have former Army Green Beret turned major college football long snapper turned activist turned commentator, Nate Boyer. Uh, Nate's been a buddy of mine for a long time, and you talk about wide-ranging conversations. I mean, this thing, we talked about everything from uh, he told me war stories from Iraq and Afghanistan that were so harrowing and humbling, and we got all the way into why he chose as a guy who never played organized football as a young man to chase major college football at the University of Texas for Mac Brown, being the guy that had the great honor of carrying the American flag at a full sprint out of the tunnel at the Cotton Bowl and elsewhere, and also in the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks, who gave him a cup of coffee in the National Football League. And, of course, most of you know Nate's name because he stood alongside Colin Kaepernick as Kaepernick kneeled during the National Anthem. And we get into that a little bit, too, but for those of you who are twitchy about politics and all those types of things and tired of that narrative – this will give you a little different perspective because it's not uh, my opinion by any stretch. It's the guy who uh, actually talked Kaepernick into taking a different approach and who stood alongside him the night he chose that approach. Uh, it's very interesting insight into why Kaepernick did what he did and all of those things. Uh, I think you'll find it very interesting. I certainly did. But today we debut Marty Smith's America 2.0 with a discussion true to my roots and my heritage, one I broached randomly on the Marty McGee program last weekend during one of my spontaneous outbursts about Phil Collins' skullet and flushed out on the tweeter machine with the help of my followers. That topic is mullets, and specifically mullets from the glorious bygone era that was the 80s and 90s. NWA Wrestling, the National Wrestling Alliance, the greatest era that produced the four horsemen, Ric Flair and Tully Blanchard, Arn and Ole Anderson, the era that gave us glorious plumage about which dozens of you wanted to weigh in. I was asked by Big Skinny's design company, at Big Skinny's, for those of you keeping score at home, which NWA star had the best mullet, with the addendum that he believed Bobby Eaton from the Midnight Express was likely the answer. I agreed Bobby's mullet was a bygone treasure, foreign to today's pop culture realm, a relic that belongs on a back wall in the Smithsonian somewhere. I answered that one of my favorite wrestlers, Robert Gibson, from the Rock and Roll Express was the answer. His jet black stringy Wisconsin waterfall was legendary, waving in the breeze alongside the red and blue tassels on his arms as he flew from the top rope to take out one Mr. Eaton in those vaunted rock and roll versus midnight bouts that consumed the Saturday mornings of my youth. A lot of y'all remember those. My answer triggered an onslaught of opinions, many of which, probably accurately, noted that Gibson didn't even have the best mullet on his own tag team. That in fact, Ricky Morton's blonde, nappy Niagara was the most memorable of the NWA mullets. 
It's impossible to rebut, really, because Ricky's mullet is still epic. Bleach blonde crawling like kudzu down towards the middle of his back, all business up front and a full-blown rave in the back. I heard names I've not heard in decades. White Rain ambassadors like Magnum T.A., the fabulous Freebirds, Ravishing Rick Rude, Barry Windham, and so many more. Some of y'all even mentioned the Hulkster. You talk about a skullet? My man Hogan had a skullet that is absolutely unmatched. It made me realize that the mullet is an institution, and so is the memory we all have of the NWA spectacle. As a kid growing up in the South, it was appointment television. The American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, son of a plumber. Lex Luger, rock and roll and the horseman. I used to lay on Louie's belly and watch. Louie was my black lab I had as a boy. Mesmerized by the spandex, trash talk, and El Camino hairdos. There are countless varieties. The Camaro mullet, the mini truck, the perm mullet. I never had a mullet, really. My hair did reach my collar at times, though. In seventh grade, I had a cornucopia of bad decisions going on. I had this spike thing going up top, sort of a Trump wave idea going on on the sides, and for good measure, for some reason, I had some lines shaved in the temporal region. I coupled that with a sweet royal blue cardigan in my school picture. It was truly unfortunate. Ultimately, the mullet is a long-lost treasure in this country. We can look back at historic moments like Billy Ray Cyrus in the Achy Breaky Heart video. He rolls up in a stretch caddy to an adoring throng of female fans, shaking at the sight of him. His mullet, tied in a ponytail, swirls the line dance drink around him as he sings these timeless words. You can tell your mall I moved to Arkansas. You can tell your dog to bite my leg. Or tell your brother Cliff, whose fist can tell my lip, he never really liked me anyway. I mean, if that's not timeless, I don't know what is. In recent years, the mullet made a bit of a comeback. Every single time Mike Gundy, head football coach for your Oklahoma State Cowboys, steps out of the tunnel, he may as well step out of a 1987 T-top Camaro I Rock Z, roll up his sleeves on the teal green Oakley jacket he rocked as the Cowboys QB in the late 80s. It's just glorious. I met Coach Gundy in December at the College Football Awards. I couldn't stop spilling compliments about his still waterfall. Former Florida Gator Dwayne Shensis mullet is mythical. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., the NASCAR star from Olive Branch, grew an excellent Mississippi mud flap befitting his home state. Young Eric Jones, another NASCAR driver, had one too. Not sure what he was doing with that thing. The country music singer Morgan Wallen currently rocks a mean Tennessee top hat. And of course, there's my man Barry Melrose. He owns that thing to this very second. It gives us all hope, really, that the legend and legacy of Bobby Eaton and the Midnight Express live on and will never die. Marty, I got a question for you. The, the mullet is, it's, it's religion. So first of all, you have to get like, t- what about my dissertation I just gave? That, that was impressive. And that's the most articulate I think I've ever actually heard you be. That's how I write. See, that's the diff. That's how I write. Uh, and when I write, of, of course my speaking is going to be much more articulate. Yeah, that, I, I don't know if our people listening are going to know who that was there. Oh, they'll know. Especially if they watch the, the Marty McGee show and the Partly Cloudy. Like, this is, this is sunny, 90 degrees out, not a cloud in the sky. Sunny and 75, boss. But Andre Agassi. You wore a yeah, wig. He had a serious mullet. A, f- a fake mullet, though. I know. 
Well, like, it's very disappointing. I can't imagine how my people reacted to that news when they learned it. And in fact, I bet some of them are just learning right now. Like it's got to be defeating. Like he was one of the greatest tennis players and he's rocking the mullet. So that's given mullet credibility saying, yes, you can wear it. You can succeed. You can win. And then it comes out that it was a wig. Yeah. And he also had those. I rem- remember how he had like a, he was like a Nike athlete and he had his own shoes, I think. And he had like some jorts. Tennis shorts. Remember those things? Yes. They were jorts, tennis shorts. So they probably were, I mean, some sort of cotton or something, but made to look like jorts. And the, I mean, you are a baller when you have not only, you know that you are a legend when you fake your mullet and your jorts all in one fell swoop. And Nike put a logo on jorts. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I've got a picture here, and th- these are... They're, they're actually not jorts because they weren't cut off, but they are, they are made to look like jorts and there is a Nike swoosh on the left side. Man, listen, you can't hide money. When you're so wealthy that you fake your mullet and your jorts, you, you are making that paper. Good on, hey, good on you, Agassi. I, I'm not going to hate on him for making that money, but I am going to hate on him for going with the fake wig, the mullet. Yeah. That's just, did did you see the guy on the prices right? I loved his shirt too. It's not a mullet, it's a mud flap. And he he was like $200 off. He won the he won the grand prize. Of course he did. He had the power of the mullet. It's like Samson, bro. When you have that kind of hair, it's extra power. It's a superpower. You're a superhero with that thing. Not only that. I mean, he didn't just have a mullet this guy on the prices right. He had a perm mullet and it was long and it was epic and he I bet he's been growing that thing for years, man. And I want to say the prizes that he won was a blender, a motorcycle, and I want to say a trip to Thailand. That's pretty good. And I then, wonder how I wonder how the folks out there in Thailand will react when they see that thing. And then when he's celebrating, this one shoot came off, and he didn't even care about it. He just went over to celebrate with one of the Price is Right girls. <laughs> Mullet, T-shirt, bowler, one shoe. Come on. Ladies love that. I'm sure they were all in. And I'm sure you guys enjoyed that conversation about the greatest haircut of all time. I should at some point post the photo of my seventh grade self. It is the most unfortunate thing ever. And not only that, like I had jacked up teeth at the time too. This was pre-braces. Uh, it was just when I randomly said on the Marty and McGee program the other day that it was a cornucopia of bad decisions. I think people have already made t-shirts that say cornucopia of bad decisions. In fact, some people felt like that should be our band name when McGee, Travis and I form uh, uh, the, the next wave of Backstreet Boys cornucopia of bad decisions is what they think we should be named. What were your friends and everybody else thinking of, like, of your hair? Oh, dude, they all had it too. What are you talking about? The mullet was the official haircut of sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in my town. I mean, everybody had them. I didn't go like in rat tails. We got into rat tails too. I never had a rat tail because my daddy would have beat me if I tried to come home with a rat tail. But I'm telling you, there is everybody had mullets. It's just that's what was cool, which is shocking. Like it's so amazing to me that dudes looked in the mirror and were like, "Look at that thing. Look at that thing. That thing is a work of art. That is an eerie. That is irresistible to the ladies." I can't, I mean, how did that, how is that even possible? Especially with when you get the, uh, the cuts on the side too. Yeah, man. I had full blown lines in there. Laney got I mean, her, I, Laney got herself a winner. 
Oh, she got herself a winner. When when Laney agreed to marry me, I had a buzz cut, like full blown, not bald headed, but buzz, full buzz, man. All right, so we need to slowly disseminate some of these photos because I need to see them. They're unfortunate. I mean, people make fun of my hair every day now, but I mean, I got look, I got legit hair. No, the hair now is a national treasure and should be treated as such. But Marty with the buzz cut and Marty with a mullet needs the. We need to see it. When Armageddon comes. When the Lord comes back, there will be two things remaining. There will be cockroaches and the fauxhawk. And the shocking thing is, though, the lack of product that is in that thing. I try to tell people, man, I don't go crazy. I just put a little bit in there and go. It's just the thickness. Um, I am remiss, though. I did not ask my man Nate Boyer whether or not he had a mullet as a kid. I doubt it. He grew up in California. Although, I don't know. The surfers out there might have had mullets, did they? Never know. Think they probably did. So, right? Someone like Nate, I could see he could. I could imagine he actually had one at one point. I mean, he grew up in Tennessee too. I failed as a journalist uh, without asking Nate whether or not he had a mullet. But as I said in the open, uh, this is a fascinating conversation from which I learned so much about an American hero. This man fought for our freedom, and I love his perspective on that freedom. We get into all of that. We get into his football exploits and. What it's like to walk into Mac Brown's office and say, hey, man, I'm going to play for you. What do I got to do? How can I do that? When you got dudes. Look, he played at the University of Texas when the University of Texas was dominant. So I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Without further ado and no more discussion on mullets, unfortunately, I know you're heartbroken. Here's my conversation with Army Green Beret, Texas Longhorn, Seattle Seahawk, Nate Boyer. My man, Nate Boyer, uh, if you guys don't know his story, I can't wait for you to hear about it. It's a fascinating tale, and someday I know he's going to call me and say, hey, man, we need to write a book together. And uh, I'm just going to plant that seed right now. Uh, he's planted. It's planted. I like it. I mean, we're talking uh, Green Beret. We're talking guy who never played down a football in his life and decided to walk into Mac Brown's office at the University of Texas and say, hey, I'm going to play college football. We're talking a guy who – Got a shot in the NFL. We're talking about a great philanthropist. I just, uh, I marvel at you, man. I, I just want to get started with your hometown. All right. Y'all need to understand Nate grew up in El Cerrito, California. Nate, are you aware of the song El Cerrito Place by Charlie Robinson? <laughs> yeah, I am. You, you know what's even more interesting though? Well, I don't know if it's more interesting, but I was actually born in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and I assume you're aware the Oak Ridge, Ridge Boys, boys right, with that accent. Of course. They're legends, man. Come on. I did see that you were born in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. How's a guy uh, born in Oak Ridge end up in uh, El Cerrito? How's that go down? Well, my my dad went to veterinary school at the University of Tennessee. And my mom uh, my mom's an envir- environmental engineer. So she was working at Oak Ridge National Lab. And he was uh, finishing up vet school. And, you know, they, they, they got married. They had me. And my dad started working out at uh, Golden Gate Fields in the Bay Area. Uh, it's the only year-round track, year-round uh, horse racing track on the West Coast. And my mom uh, started working out, out there, too. After Well, actually, she first went out and finished her Ph.D. at Berkeley. So my parents are really, really smart is the, the whole point of that story. <laughs> and uh, that's what brought me out to California. My dad's actually from Southern Oregon. My mom's from, from Denver. And uh, they both have a great affinity for horses and 
And uh, strange as it is, we ended up living in the Bay Area where it's tough to to have horses, but we were always around that. You know, when I was when I was growing up, that was something that was a part of my life. Your post high school moments were it was an interesting road. You you dabbled in a couple of things, uh, some fishing and some firefighting, and none of that worked out. So you decided to move to Hollywood, right? What what was that experience like when you decided to go to Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I graduated high school and I went down to San Diego and, and worked on a fishing boat for about a year, and I loved it. Um, but it, it just it was kind of a lot of a lot of the same thing every day. And it, I mean, don't get me wrong; it was great to be outside and work like that. And you know, and then I thought I wanted to be a firefighter, and I was taking firefighter classes. But I think I was, you know, I was 19 years old, and I just wasn't quite ready to, you know, commit to something like that. And I think grow up, I guess. And so I moved up to Los Angeles. I was interested in in, the, in film and TV, and, and I'd never worked in it. I'd never really had an interest in it. Um, I'm not really sure what exactly triggered that, but you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have a lot going on or a lot to like hold me back from just moving up there. So, I mean, I lived in my car for like five months till it got a little chilly and then, uh, I'd saved up and I, I moved into a little shoebox, you know, studio with a Murphy bed in the wall. And, uh, it was just, <laughs> I was partying a lot, but I was, you know, I was taking acting classes and I was working and several different jobs. I worked with autistic kids, some, uh, which is really powerful and Mm-hmm. meant a lot to me and and uh and eventually you know that led me overseas uh believe it or not you know it wasn't 9-11 occurred and it didn't it wasn't the, the ultimate reason i joined the military but it definitely uh, i think started that process it was the first card to drop on the uh you know the first domino to drop i guess on the uh uh, whatever those things are called that knock all the dominoes down. For what reason? And I'm not being trite here. I'm, I'm intrigued yeah. by your perspective. What was 9-11 for you? Man, I mean, I was, I, was, I was 20, almost 21 years old, and I was fortunate to have two great parents that worked very hard, um, who still work very hard, and who loved me, you know, and supported me no matter what I wanted to pursue, right? You know, and it was, I think it hurt them. It was heartbreaking to them that I didn't go to college or after high school because I just didn't know what I wanted to study or what I even wanted. I didn't even know if I wanted college. And they still, I still had these opportunities living in a place like this, you know, in the family that I had and just this country, man. I mean, we have a lot of opportunity here. As as hard as some things are and as, as imperfect as we are, uh, we're still, we're still pretty incredible. And that's, that's, that's my opinion, obviously, but. Um, when nine eleven happened, I just it kind of took me out of that that bubble, you know, uh, and this this uh, this idea that that it's almost we have no connection to some of the the tragedies in the world, you know, in the developing world especially. And I started to study up on it a little bit. It didn't ultimately, or I guess initially, bring me over there, um, you know, to the military, to the Middle East, or to to any other place, but. It got me. It got me traveling, and so I, I'd, I'd save my money up, and and uh, I'd just go backpacking somewhere. You know, I'd, I'd take the trains, and I'd bring a hammock with me, and you know, just kind of just bum around and, and 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 learn about the world. You know, and I checked out different parts of the different parts of the globe, and and you know, eventually, um, I was back here in the states, and I think just traveling like that without a purpose, though, without a specific mission. Um, was not quite as fulfilling as it could have been. So I remember being back here, and this was a couple of years after, or I guess almost three years after 9-11, mid-2004, and, and 
my buddy handed me this Time Magazine article. The title of it was The Tragedy in Sudan. And, you know, the, just the cover image uh, was this you know, woman holding a child and they're emaciated. And, um, and I'm like flipping through these images and, and looking at, at the, the, the pictures, really, you know, that, that hit me more than anything. And I, was, and I read about what was going on over there. And, um, you know, this is, this is the, the height of the genocide um, in the Darfur. I think 300,000 or, or so people had already been killed. Um, so many women and children living in these refugee camps and fleeing um, with nowhere to go. A lot of them, you know, they, they, they weren't building the camps fast enough. They didn't have uh, the manpower that they needed. And so I just made the decision that I was going to go over there and help. And so I called every NGO um, that was over there that I could research. And, you know, I, I went down to the public library. People used to do that. I don't know if people do that anymore, but, um, you know, I went on the interwebs and, and uh, studied as much as I could and, you know, was reading about it and, all the NGOs told me that I, you know, since I didn't have a college degree and any special skills and I couldn't speak French, I wouldn't be able to help. And I was like, well, aren't you guys understaffed? And they said, yeah, we are, but it's just, it, it takes a long time to like process all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go. So I went to the to AAA in Burbank um, and I just bought a ticket to Chad, which is a neighboring country where the refugee camps were actually. And I flew over there. I, I, I BS'd my way onto a UN uh, HCR flight. That's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Um, they had an empty seat on this little prop plane, and I told them that I'd been robbed in Paris and my my paperwork had been stolen, and I was supposed to be with so and so organization, and they believed me and put me on the plane and flew me out there. And I just made my way to the camps, and you know, once I got there, they absolutely needed me because they put me to work. Uh, but I think it was a situation where, well, well, look, the guy's here already. I mean, we gotta, we gotta use him. What, what else are we gonna do? I mean, it's, you know, the front lines of these, the men were off fighting or had all been killed already. weren't far away, and it was just women, children, and elderly in these camps. And you know, so I assisted in the medical centers and helped build the, build the sites, and you know, played soccer with the kids every day, jumped double dutch with the little girls and on the jump rope, and uh, just talked to people, hung out, and it was, uh, it was powerful, man. Just I think the biggest takeaway I had personally, um, and I hope I at least made an impact on some people's lives over there, but personally it was just like this gain, gaining of my, my patriotism while I was there, you know, and, and not that I was unpatriotic here in the States, but everybody wanted to hear about America, you know, and like what we're all about and what the country's actually like. And it's just this like beacon of hope for so many people. Um, and they just were, you know, enthralled by anything I had to say about it. Um, and i was proud of that. You know, I thought that was really cool. And, and so that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to come back uh, and maybe serve in the military. And the, the other reason was I got malaria the last week I was there. I was listening on the BBC radio to the second battle of Fallujah and the Marines that were over there fighting. And it was just these young, you know, these young men that many of them maybe had an experience very similar to mine, you know, that were willing to uh, sacrifice everything for people that they don't even know you know, in the name of, uh, of, of, of hope, just like I was over there, um, listening to, you know, when I was speaking with these people. So that was, uh, that was, those were the reasons. That's why I joined the military. Um, that trip right there, I came back and a couple weeks later I was, uh, you know, signing up and, 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 you know, wanting to become a Green Beret. I'm a parent. I have three kids and I can't help but wonder how I might react if my son came home and told me he was going to do that. How'd your folks react to that? Slightly differently, but they both were 
uh, definitely concerned. Um, you know, my, my dad almost was a, a part of the Vietnam War, and, you know, he didn't dodge or anything like that. It just didn't, it didn't, didn't end up happening. And um, I think there was a part of him that was like, maybe, maybe wishes he, he would have served, you know? There was a part of him that thought, I, I think it's this idea of like kind of earning, earned Americanism or something like that. that and, and my mother... Uh, you know, I mean, she she didn't let me play football when I was a kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not that she was overprotective. She just was like, I was her firstborn, you know, and uh, and she was very. Uh, she looked after her her. She looked after her little Nathan, you know. And this was like, I think it was a tough one for her because she knew my the direction of my life before that decision wasn't necessarily going anywhere. But at the same time, of course, like that worry and that fear, and, and I've already put her through a lot it's just compounding when you make a decision like that. And I think part of her was afraid. It was just like this fleeting idea I had that I wasn't really committed to it. And I'd get out there and it, it wouldn't be what I thought, you know, and I wouldn't want to be a part of it uh, or I wouldn't be willing to, to sacrifice what it takes to, you know, to make it as a, as a green beret. And then in that sense, you know, your, your needs of the army, wherever they want to send you, they send you um, because you're committed for five years at a minimum. So there was definitely that conversation, but I remember, very distinctly, uh, when I graduated basic training, uh, you know, 14 weeks after I went out to enlist and, and they all came, you know, and I remember my mom showing up and she got all dressed up and she came and like, I'd never seen her more proud of me, you know? And I was like, I was a private that hadn't done anything yet. I just graduated basic training, but I think she, she maybe saw, I don't know if she saw it in me or just saw it in that experience. Um, or maybe that was just her worry that it would, you know, I'd be bouncing around so quick that I'd get out there and immediately be like, I made the wrong decision. But that was really special to me to see, you know, the way that, the way that the pride in her face, you know, I mean, I, I kind of knew my dad would be proud of me and I knew my mom would eventually, but just to, to, to really see it, um, was big for me. I mean, that was, uh, that was a powerful moment and I knew that I, I think I'd made the right decision in my life. Green Beret is such a distinguished title and I can't imagine the commitment that it takes to get it. I can't imagine the pride you feel in having it. It just screams elite. What what fortitude does a man have to have to earn that title? It's all about how bad you want something, I think, in life. And and, and that's a that's a a brilliant example of that. Because if you told me if you if you had everybody line up in basic training, the the, the, the basic training course I went to between the four platoons, I think about 75% of us had this 18 x-ray contract where you could come in off the street um, and you had to pass like a psych eval and, you know, physical training test and language aptitude test and, uh, and the ASVAB. If you scored high enough on all these things, you get this 18 x-ray contract where you could go to basic training, airborne school. And if you pass those and you pass pre-selection, you go out to special forces selection. And if you get through that, and you start your training to be a Green Beret. And, you know, out of the 140, I think it was 145 of us in that um, in that battalion that had, or in that company, basic training company that had that contract. I want to say only about, I think it's like, I think it was like 11 um, that I can remember off the top of my head, you know, I made it all the way through, through and earned a Green Beret. It may have been a few more than that, I just don't know, but it was very low. And if you lined everybody up and you had me just walk through on day one and pick the guys, I wouldn't have picked one of them right um, because it's all about, it's all about this mental fortitude and, and, you know, these guys that have 
a chip on their shoulder for whatever reason, it's like green beret or bust. You know what I mean? And a lot of those guys have risen even above that uh, from, I mean, I keep in touch with them guys that are in, you know, units we don't speak of and stuff like that. And it's just pretty incredible um, how that works, but it's just, it, it's all about how bad an individual wants something. And that's why I'm such a firm believer that, that literally anything is possible for any person. Cause we see, people do incredible things all the time in our world, you know, and it's like, sometimes they have, they have great obstacles they have to overcome to get there, but they still make it happen. And we're like, wow, man, that person, I wish I had that. I mean, I'll never, I'd never be able to do what that person did. And I hear people say that all the time to me about, oh, I could never do what you did. It's not true. You could, you just got to want it and, and you got to be willing to sacrifice, but we're all capable of doing anything. It's just a matter of like, what are you willing to, to give up to make that happen. You know, are you, are you willing to commit? Um, are you going to be okay with understanding that whatever new skill you're going to, you're going to uh, shoot for that you're probably going to suck for a while, you know, and, uh, or are you just going to give up when it gets a little bit difficult and you, you, and you think that you do suck or whatever, or are you going to push through that and, uh, you know, sort of earn those scars on the way to victory because eventually you will get there. You know, you just have to, and I don't want, I don't want to say like, you just got to believe you just got to work. You know, belief isn't enough. It's putting the time in and, uh, and committing and sacrificing. And that's what it really is. That's what it comes down to. That's what it takes to be a green beret. Those of us who've never served and only see what we see uh, via the media have a certain vision of what, you know, what you guys experience over in the sandbox and, and those types of things. And, you certainly spent your time in Iraq and Afghanistan. What's a what's a war story that's not classified that you can share with me that encapsulates your time over there defending our freedom? Honestly, this is and this is kind of a it's a different one because I got my Green Beret I think eight years before this even happened, and this was while I was already at the University of Texas and I was playing football, and you know in the in the summer times I would deploy every year. I stayed in the Texas National Guard uh, in 19th Special Forces Group, and I volunteered every summer to go overseas. And before my junior and my senior year, I went back to Afghanistan. I went to Afghanistan, and I served with uh, a couple of different Special Forces units. My last trip over there was in 2014, and it's about two weeks before I head back to Texas. You know, um, I would deploy for I think it was about 108 days was exactly how, <laughs> how many, uh, how much time I had between taking my finals a little bit early and then coming back for training camp. And, um, they would make sure and fly me back literally the day before training camp because the SOCOM commander at the time was uh, Admiral McRaven, who would eventually become the chancellor. You got his book sitting right beside me. Honest to God, uh, sitting right beside me. He's, he's incredible. I mean, I think probably a lot of people listening, if you haven't, you need to go listen to his, uh, um, Graduation uh, what do you call this? Speech. Yeah. Thank yeah, his you. His commencement address. <laughs> commencement. Yeah. His commencement at university of Texas a few years ago was pretty incredible. Um, I think I was actually overseas when that happened, but, um, anyway, he, he you know, he would, he would pull a string here and there to make sure I, I got back uh, in time for training camp. Cause he wanted me to play football too, uh, which was really cool. And, uh, but anyway, it's about two weeks before I come back, and the team, you know, we work in 12-man teams, uh, so it's very small uh, as far as the Americans, but we're always fighting alongside indigenous forces. I mean, that's what we do in the Special Forces. That's what, that's what Green Berets do. It's, it's by, with, and through the local people, you know, it's foreign internal defense. So 
we're we're training, fighting alongside, and living with Iraqis or Afghans, um, and the people we're you know trying to help uh, liberate in some way. So we we're we're with the Afghan commandos. Uh, I think it was about seventy of them that we worked with on this day, and we went into this valley, and we knew. I mean, we could see through you know ISR footage like the the the, the bad guys were. <laughs> Uh, they were massing in this certain building. And so, like, you know, we knew we were going to get uh, attacked. We knew we were going to get ambushed. We knew it was coming. Um, but we still drove drove there, drove into it, because uh, that was the route we were taking. And we had a certain mission, and we were going to secure this area. And it didn't matter. Like, that's what we were doing. So, you know, we drove in there. And, of course, boom, as soon as we, you know, cross uh, the kill zone, or there's mortars going off, and they're firing at us, and we're firing at them. And it's like a... The firefight that lasted all day. And it's like later in the afternoon, and, and I'm on the back, I'm on the, the tailgate of this uh, Matt V, which is like a oversized Humvee. I'm on a 240 um, you know, machine gun, and I'm just returning fire, and mostly cover fire so that our troops can move. Um, and we're trying to take that building where all these, these guys were. And there's a couple Americans in front of me up on a, on a knoll that are, you know, are providing providing suppressive fire as well. And there's the Afghan captain who's running around trying to control his men. And like, you know, he's on the radio and he's trying to do what he can do. And, you know, right over next to me, he, he gets shot through the neck and, you know, he goes down and, um, it didn't, didn't look good. You know, nothing I could do. I had to stay on the gun there. And so I, 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 I kept firing and the two men on that knoll rushed over to treat him. They dragged him behind cover and it's two Americans that are trying to save a life. Neither of them medics, you know, um, trained uh, trained to an extent, but they're, they're doing what they can to save this Afghan, you know, captain's life. And they did everything they could, but, you know, he, he didn't make it, unfortunately. And so the, 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 the firefight ends, you know, and we finally, we, we called in the A-10s and, and finished up the job and, like, you know, did everything, did everything we could. And, uh, Unfortunately, that was the only man we lost that day, and, and so we're we're heading back to an area where the you know the medevac bird's going to come in and take the body. And I remember that bird coming in, and there was three. And they're not supposed to do this. After, usually, we don't let our counterparts, even the even the guys we're working with, you know, approach the, um, the American uh, helos. But there was three Americans and three Afghans carrying this gurney of their you know their fallen captain. And they're, they, you know, they're carrying his body out there to the bird, and they put it on the bird, and it takes off, you know. And then the men are all moving back to the vehicles, and this one, one of the Afghan men was like following behind, and he, you could just see that you could see from him, you know, a hundred feet away or more, is the emotion on his face, and he like just like dropped to his knees and just started crying. It was like the, the you know, the helicopter taking off right above him, kicking up dust and dirt everywhere, and. And just it just it just hit him that hard, you know. And we went back to the um, we went back to the team house, and, and we were talking to him about that in front of the group. And it was just like the the, the pride he had like kind of grown up. <laughs> he was a little kid. There there wasn't that sense of pride uh, for country and, and for fighting for you know the, the 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 hope of of freedom, you know, and the hope of of. Of, of basic human rights for a lot of these people. Um, and that was his leader. I mean, that was his friend since he was young. 
you know, and then, then he became a captain and that was, that was someone that he followed and looked up to. And a lot of that was not us individually, our team, but like over the years, you know, the presence of Americans for the last 13 years kind of helping instill that pride. So for me, it was like, because it's always been, it's been a tough one. It's been, you know, like, cause you're not always clear what the mission is, you know, and, and, and you're over there and it's very challenging. It's very difficult, the work that we do. And it's heartbreaking. You lose men, whether they're Americans, Afghans, Iraqis, and you're not always a hundred percent sure that like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I think that's just a human condition. We're always wondering that, you know, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? And that moment solidified it for me that like, as much as we tried everything that we could do um, for the people that we fought alongside to see at least some individuals take that type of pride um, and it mattered to them, you know, to move forward and to try to um, try to break free of that oppression, try to try to, you know, earn that the voting rights and education and, and all these things that I was just given, you know, because I was born in America like that that meant a lot to me, you know, and that was, uh, that was the most powerful moment for me. And it wasn't, it wasn't any of the firefights, the battles that led to that, um, or that, that, uh, gave me that feeling. It was what led to that, you know, it was that moment, um, that just kind of brought it full circle for me. And, you know, I'll just, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that day. Uh, you know, two weeks later I was in a football helmet and pads, uh, you know, long snapping in my senior year at Texas. And it was, it was very surreal, but, um, it makes the the, the flag and, 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 you know, what it's supposed to represent, um, those symbols, even more important to me because of days like that. I, I have a million questions. I mean, first of all, that was extremely powerful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, of course. I mean, what's it like to come home when you have that perspective, when you know the mental impact of a day-long firefight and seeing a man right beside you get killed? I mean, right beside you, and then you come home and you see all of this excessive idiocy, whether people are fighting on Twitter or they're uh, complaining about God knows what. How do you manage that when you have the perspective of what you've seen versus maybe what you come home to as a college student? It's difficult. You have to understand that, you know, that people don't know what they don't know because I was that same kid before and not just kids you know if i didn't experience these things if i didn't go over there i would have no idea either you know and it's just ignorant of me or arrogant of me you know to be upset because someone doesn't understand something um if they've never been around it they don't have that perspective and it's hard to give anybody that perspective by just telling them you know it it, it doesn't necessarily do the trick you know you got to see it and, and feel it and be around it to really understand, you know, and, and, and that's why it's tough for me. And I think a lot of veterans that come home, you know, when it comes to, to PTSD and talking to clinicians and all that, it's important. It's absolutely important. You have to communicate that stuff. You got to talk about it. But if the person you're sharing it with doesn't have a shared experience, it's hard for you to, to think they're going to understand what you're really going through. You know what I mean? And to to offer that type of advice. So it's, you know, it's tough. And I, I don't blame people. I just feel bad for people that, that have that. And I think a lot of it on social media, it's just, it's not even real. You know, I'm not talking about bots. I think it's just people that just say stuff to say stuff. I don't even think 
I think 90% of the, the hate and vitriol that's out there on the web, like they don't even really believe it. You know, it's just, they want to be a part of something, <laughs> you know, people want to belong. And if you don't feel like you belong to something, maybe you just decide to become the villain. And, uh, and that, that's how you belong to the group. Um, it, it, that stuff's really bizarre, but yeah, it all comes from that place of, of experience, you know, and, and that's a tough one. I, I can't imagine cause I'm not a parent, you know, but as a parent, like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you toe that line where you want your kids to experience, you know, some loss and some failure and some hardship, but you don't want to put your kids through uh, difficult times. I mean, you're doing everything you can to provide them with, you know, opportunity and hope and, you know, want, you want them to believe in themselves. Like I wouldn't even know where to start with that. So that's a very, that's a very challenging thing. I mean, you know, for me, it wasn't until I was basically in my mid twenties that, that that all happened. And it was coming from a place of, I wasn't being very good to myself. You know what I mean? I was, I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, and I was probably very depressed and didn't know it. And, uh, you know, without that trip to the Darfur and without, um, nine 11 without these, these horrible things happening in the world. I don't know if I ever would have broke out of that. And that's kind of crazy to think about that. that it, it took for me as an individual, this huge loss of life and, and hurt, um, for people all over the world, you know, for me to, to get on the right track. But, you know, I, I think us as Americans, I also believe we, we do have somewhat of a duty because we've been so fortunate you know, and I'm talking about everybody in this country, whether you got here late and did everything you could to get here, uh, or you were lucky enough like me to be born here. And I don't care what skin color, you know, religious beliefs, it doesn't matter. Like we do have incredible opportunities here and things aren't all equal. I'm not saying that, but in comparison to much of the world, uh, you, you know, we, we love our underdogs here. Like you can rise up from any situation and we pull for you. You know, we want the people that don't, that didn't have, uh, have it all laid out for them. You know, that had to earn it, that had to work. Like there's, there's not a lot of the world that's like that. You know, they don't support underdogs in a lot of places. Um, you just, that, that's your place in the world and you'll never break out of it. And here, like, well, that's what we want. You know, we want those people to succeed. So, um, it's really on us, you know, as individuals to make that decision, you know, to, to let the, to let the, uh, everybody's got in their life and, and, you know, you can, you can let the stench overwhelm you or you can turn it into fertilizer and grow something. And, and that's just a decision you have to make, um, for yourself. You know, people can tell it to you all day long, but you know, until you make that decision and, and take responsibility for your life, you know, it's, it's not going to, nothing's going to change. And, uh, and yeah, I, I just, I think that there's a, there's so much opportunity out there to, to heal the world too. Um, and I think Americans, I think veterans, I think professional athletes, I think a lot of people um, are the ones, uh, you know, the subgroups are the ones that are going to really get things going in the right direction again and bring us back together because we're, we're desperately needing some unity uh, in America right now. Unity, kindness, hope. There's a lot of things that people are desperately searching for. I say all the time that we don't respect our freedom. We just have it. It was given to us. It is a privilege to have it. And uh, I wish that we did respect it more. Um, a couple more things on your military service, and, and we can move on to football and some other things. But, you know, listening to you discuss the firefight, I just can't help but wonder, you know, what? how often do you think about dying? Did you, did you fear dying over there? 
Yeah, I, I, I did. Um, I fear a lot of things, man. I fear a lot of things, and, and I think a lot of people assume I'm not. I'm not afraid of anything. Cause I'm a Green Beret. You know what I mean? Like, oh, how'd you go over there? And how are you doing that? And you weren't scared. I was like, I was scared all the time. You know. But you know, John Wayne said it best: courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Without that fear, you can't be courageous. You can't be brave if you're not afraid. And we all have that. And I think anybody that wore the, the camouflage went over there, you know, and fought. Anybody that says they weren't scared at all, either just absolutely crazy or lying to you. And uh, and it's okay. Like you, you should be. It's normal. In those moments, so behind the gun. I mean, it, it's crazy where your mind goes. I remember during that that firefight I was telling you about. One of the thoughts kept popping in my head was like, if I do get hit, I'm probably not going to be able to play football my senior year. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and be able to play football. And that was like a that was what I was worried about, which is stupid, you know. But I was like, I wasn't worried. I was like, you know, when you're over there, everything you're doing in those moments, it's all about the man next to you. It's all about the men around you. You just keep them alive. Do what you can to make them successful, uh, which ironically translates to a football field pretty well. Everybody does what they can to make everyone else successful. The other 10 guys on the field, then uh, typically things go pretty well. But that's what you're kind of thinking about. But then when you know when the bullet careens off your vehicle and you're hearing them crack over your head, you know sometimes you do think about yourself and your own safety and security in those in those moments. And you know it, it feels good. You get that rush when you when you don't cower. When that happens, and you stay there. You know you stay there and you keep fighting. It's this incredible feeling of like pride in yourself. Like, you know, I can do this. I'm supposed to be here. I'm not afraid to, to keep standing and maybe I will get shot. You know, that that's like a special feeling. That's knowing you like, you, you definitely got over some type of hump, you know, the, the, when that happens and you feel that. And there's nothing in this world that I think that can replicate that feeling. I can't even really describe it. But the thoughts that were popping into my head was like, well, you know, if I get here, if I get hit here, it'll probably. Uh, if I just get winged a little bit or like, you know, grazed, I'll probably be fine. I'll be able to play this year. I'll actually probably have a pretty cool scar. Maybe it'll be, hopefully it's low enough. It'll be below my pads that people can see, you know, how cool this like scar, like weird stuff like that. But, and then something happens, you know, like when, when that, that captain got hit, that I immediately like all those stupid thoughts go away. And it's like you hyper-focus once again. It, it cracks me up that you were thinking about football. And that leads me to, How's a guy who never played organized football decide, I'm going to go play college football? And not only am I going to play college football, I'm going to play at the University of Texas. How's that happen? I remember being in Iraq, and, man, like it was such an escape for me watching football. I mean, you know, Tuesday through Friday was tough because there wasn't much you know, going on football-wise, I guess, in the Thursday night game. But um, we're, we're, you know, we're nine hours ahead over there. So we're getting back from a mission at five in the morning and, you know, I'm trying to catch the last few minutes of, you know, the Monday night football game or whatever, um, before I go to bed. And, uh, uh, it was just such an escape, you know, and, and, and it just, it's, it's, it's the biggest sport in America. And, um, when people, you know, all the troops over there, all of us, man, we, we got our teams, NFL teams, college teams, you know, we talk crap, um, we we give each other crap about it, and uh, it's just a it's a pretty special thing, man. I love watching those teams and those players that just played like their hair was on fire, man. Like that stuff, 
it meant a lot to me, you know. And uh, so then when I'm, I made that decision over there, and I started training for it. I was in Iraq, and I was, like, running routes in the sand and, like, Googling and YouTubing, you know, how to play football, like, literally, <laughs> stuff like that, how to train for football. Like, if I'm going to be with my size, I'm probably only going to be, like, a, I could probably only be, like, a slot receiver or a safety, you know. And uh, so I'm trying to get faster. I'm trying to get put some some weight on because at that point, you know, I was going to be out of the military in, in just about a year. And I kind of made the decision I was going to go back to school and try and play ball. And uh, and I actually initially it was this idea of oh I'll, I'll, you know I'll go to a small school and hopefully I can walk on make the team and maybe play a little bit. And one of my buddies, Brad. Brad Keys, who's a big hero of mine. Um, unfortunately, Brad passed away in 2012. Uh, but I'm telling him, like, hey, you know, I'm thinking of going back and playing ball. And I was like, where are you going to go? And I was like, I don't know, like a small school somewhere or whatever. And he was like, no, dude, if you go if you go back and play football, you're Green Beret, man. you got to go to a big school. you got to go somewhere elite, you know. You have to do it. And I was like, all right, well. Um, what do you think? You know, we started talking about it and I talked about it with a few other guys and it was like, you know, it, it, it narrowed it down to just a few, a handful of schools at the time there. And, and I, I loved, I'd been to Austin and I loved it. And I knew Texas was really good to their veterans. And, you know, Mac Brown had been over there on a USO trip. Um, I think the year, a year or two before I went, before I was in Iraq and I didn't meet, I didn't meet coach Brown. Um, but, I talked to I, t- I talked to a couple guys about that trip and they had met him. They said, "Man, he like held the helicopter up because he was going to sign every autograph, meet every single person." That's Coach um, Brown, and that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, and so I just decided on Texas. You know, they were really, really good too at that time. I mean, that was like Colt McCoy's uh, senior year, and and I just was that's the only place I enrolled. I got in. Fortunately, I got into the school, and came out, and you know, tried out for the team. And, it was going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction <laughs> half the time during tryouts. But I just – I went as hard as I could on everything and probably pissed off most of the scholarship players for the first few weeks because uh, I was just that annoying guy that, that you know, isn't very athletic but just never quits and, and somehow beats you uh, on those 120-meter sprints when you're, you're getting down to, like, you know – the last few of them because I run the same speed on every single one um <laughs> but it you know it worked out they, I remember showing up one day and I had a pair of cleats in the locker and you know a jersey with my name on it and like what was that, that was like it's amazing man I mean I just I got out there you know and I I I, uh, I remember walking out on the field you know before trials even started I mean I I got out of the, I got off of active duty on January 8th. January 9th was my birthday, and I drove down to Austin that day from Colorado Springs. And so I think classes started the next day, and then the day after that was the first day of tri- spring tryouts. And so it was like bang, 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 bang. I, I checked into a Motel 6 and stayed there for a month. And just I'd come home every night and go to the little ice machine and just get like 10 buckets of ice, fill up the bathtub, you know, put the water, cold water on and just get in the ice tub and try to like, you know, heal the body. Um, but I was doing it with a smile on my face. I mean, I felt this like excitement, uh, almost like I felt when I made that decision to go to the Darfur, like when I was in basic training, getting my ass kicked, like 
this excitement of like, I'm going to do something really special, you know, and this is like, this matters and I belong, I belong in this place. You know, I had a feeling early on through tryouts that I was going to make it just because there's no denying how hard I was going, you know, and I had a, a few coaches come up and just tell me kind of keep, you know, just keep doing what you're doing, just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but thank you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the day I walked in there and had that, you know, the, the little, the equipment manager there, Chip, I walk in there and have that stuff in my locker, you know, and I remember like putting it on and it's just, everything's big. You know, I wasn't a very big guy. And, uh, and I went back and asked him and I said, I said, Chip, do you have, uh, you guys have like a, a like a medium pair of shorts or something like that? And he just looks at me and he goes, we don't recruit medium players, Boyer. And that was it. Um, but I knew, I knew from that interaction that like, I mean, this was, this was a hundred percent real. Um, and it was, it was like, it was awesome. I mean, the, the first day of putting pads on, I'm like watching the other kids around me, kids, uh, put these things on. Cause I'd never done it before. I man. I had a pretty good idea of how to put them on, but they don't, they weren't hanging in my locker before I couldn't come in late at night and like practice how to put on my pads. So I, I'm like kind of watching out of the corner of my eyes. They all put theirs on. And then I, I'm like, oh, okay, it goes like that. It goes like this, put your arm under this deal. And, uh, I mean, it's common sense once you do it, but still, you know, I didn't want to look like an ass and yeah, just, just, I mean, nobody really knew, nobody knew I hadn't played coach Brown didn't even know I hadn't played until after my first year. Cause that's when I had the conversation with him about long snap. Cause I was, you know, I was playing, I was a safety on the scout team and I was getting run over every day, you know, doing what I can to help them prepare for the week. But like. I saw the writing on the wall quick. I mean, these guys were so fast and so big and so athletic and just, I was like, all right, I got to find a way on the field. And that's when I figured out you know, the long snapper was uh, a senior and his backup was a senior. And, uh, and before I went overseas that summer, I went to coach Brown and I, I just went to his office and told him, coach, I, you know, I want to, uh, I want to try and be your long snapper next year, you know? And he was just like, uh, have you ever long snapped before? And I said, coach, I never played football before I got here. Um, and I made the team, so I'll figure it out, you know? And he's just like, all right, yeah, no, of course you can, you can, you can try out for it. You can give it a shot. You know? And he later would tell me like, he thought there's no way in hell, like this kid's going to figure it out. And, well, this man, this old man's going to figure it out in, uh, you know, three and a half months overseas before training camp. But, you know, I did. I, I I'd started messing with it before I left, watching the watching the, the starting snapper, and um, you know during bowl practices and the, through the spring, like just messing with it. And then going overseas, and I brought a couple footballs with me, and I built a plywood target, and I was just snapping into this target. You know, whenever I had thirty minutes here, an hour there, um, over in Afghanistan, and I came back home and. Um, and during tryouts, you know, like they'd recruited this kid um, to come in and do it. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a freshman. And so, uh, and he was good, you know, he's good, good long snapper. And so I, I was fortunate to win the backup job. So they're like, Hey man, you're on the travel squad. You know, you're going to back him up and you know, that's pretty cool. Like, All right. That sounds great. So, if, you know, the first game of the year comes around and, uh, he has a couple, I mean, it's 101,000 people in the stands and, uh, he had a couple not great snaps and, and, uh, that week 
a practice before the second game. You know, we had like a snap off <laughs> on a deal at practice, and <laughs> and uh, I won it, and, and the, the staff told me that I'd be starting that week, and and then I started for for thirty eight straight games, uh, and never had a never had a bad snap. I had a lot of not perfect snaps, but I never had a bad snap, and um, I think a lot of it I, I credit to the training I got in the military. You know that that hyper focus I was talking about earlier, locking in, and uh, you know, this menta- this mentality and mindset of aim small, miss small, um, when it com- came to snapping the ball and then just doing what I could to <laughs> to take the charge, man, to get in front of people and let them run me over uh, instead of getting a kick blocked. Um, and, you know, it, it worked out for me. I was tiny. You know, I was 190 pounds soaking wet, um, you know, swung snapping on field goals and extra points with 320-pound guards next to you. It's kind of weird. You know, I looked like a... I looked like a little person out there, but, um, you know, but I, I figured it out. I, I held my ground, you know, I, I utilized my size in some ways, you know, as far as staying low and, uh, yeah, it worked, uh, it worked out for me. The last thing I want to discuss uh, about Texas is I can't imagine what it must've been like being the guy that got to carry that flag out of the tunnel every Saturday. What, what, what did that mean to you being a, a war veteran? And running out there in that burnt orange and white, carrying old glory at, as hard as you could truck it. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's still some of my most special moments. Uh, was running out with that flag, you know, running out of the fog, whether it was a Cotton Bowl against OU or on the road somewhere um, when you're getting booed, <laughs> or at home, you know, when they're just going nuts. To leave the team out with the flag and and to uh, to spend those moments thinking about the, the men and women that were still over there fighting. But I think more importantly for all of us that wore camouflage, the, the ones that didn't come back or the ones that did come back and, and, um, and they're back here at home, you know, but they haven't really come home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like sure. that's, that's what it represented for me. And I know that flag doesn't represent the military. It represents all Americans, but because of some of the training I went through and some of the stuff I experienced overseas, like it's got a very, um, there's a very, uh, very heavy uh, emotion that comes with those colors, you know? Well, you fought for um, them. We didn't. I mean, yeah. You, yeah. You, you had bullets whizzing by your head. You had brothers die right beside you. You went through all that all right. training. You went over there to the sandbox. You dealt with all the emotions. You dealt with seeing brothers with PTSD. You still do every day. So, of course, it's going to mean something different. I love the flag as much as anybody who's ever breathed, but I love it probably with different perspective than you have. Right. Yeah, I think think we all do. That's okay for you to admit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's exactly that, Marty. It's it's my experience. My experience is what shapes my beliefs, you know, and my feelings and emotions towards anything, towards any symbol. And specifically that one in this context, you know, part of it was one of the training schools I went through that was, um, you know, SEER school. Uh, and, and for people, I, I'm not supposed to talk too much about SEER school, so people can look up what that is. It's all over the Internet. But um, towards the end of that training, you know, there, there's a moment uh, with that flag that undeniably brings brings some of the toughest men I've ever been around to tears, you know. And 
just from that moment alone, despite all the other stuff and how we treat it, you know, and how we address it when it's brought into a room, um, how we salute it, how we face it, um, that moment, that's going to stick with you. You know, you're not going to be able to forget that moment and that what you were feeling at that time when that flag was raised. And so, and that leads us straight into Kaepernick. Yeah. I mean, that that leads us right. directly into your relationship with Colin Kaepernick. And um, I know that you've discussed this on countless myriad platforms, but I want to know. I mean, h- how does the narrative begin between you and Colin? Why was it on your heart to be someone who decided? Uh, as a man who fought for it, like we just discussed, as a man who saw bloodshed in its honor, decide that it's the right thing to go put your hand on a man's shoulder who decides that it's not right for him to stand for it. In college, like we just talked about, you know, you you run out of that tunnel. I ran out of that tunnel with that flag, but it was always after the anthem was played. In college, we stay in the locker room. Um, typically when it's played and, right. and uh, that's just the tradition, the way it works. And in the NFL, I mean, I played for one game with the Seahawks, you know, and it was at CenturyLink field. It was against the Broncos and Peyton Manning in his final year, the year he went on to win the Super Bowl and then retire. And it was raining and it was a preseason game and the place was packed and loud and crazy. You know, the Seahawks had been to back-to-back Super Bowls. And so there was a lot of emotions. Take the anthem and the flag out of it, already running through me, right, um, because of that moment. And right before the game, the team asked me to lead, the, lead uh, the Seahawks out of the tunnel with the flag, with the American flag, just like I did every game in college. And Of course, I said yes, and, you know, and, I, and I lead the team out of the tunnel with that flag. And, you know, and this is in 2015, so a year before uh, Colin Kaepernick's protest. And... You know, I run out there and I hand the flag off to the equipment manager, you know, and then I'm like getting ready for kickoff, right? And not really thinking about the anthem because I just, in my experience, that's not, that's already been done. And, you know, and then I hear the announcer say, everybody, please rise and take their hats off and, you know, um, whatever. Uh, And so out there on the field is, um, there's a bunch of people in, you know, dress uniforms from the military. And, and I, you know, I put my hand on my heart and look up to where the, the tallest flag is in the building or in the stadium. And uh, the song starts playing and I just lost it. I just started crying. Um, and it was a lot of things. It wasn't just the anthem. It was just the, 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 the weight of that day, the emotion. And uh, I'm like bawling and it's like an ugly cry. And, uh, and I get done, you know, and a bunch of the players, I think everybody on the sideline assumed it was just all about the military for me. And it wasn't, you know, it was a lot of things. Um, but that song, when I hear that song and I see that flag, like it brings out emotion every time. Even when I'm just talking about it right now, I feel emotional. And, uh, and you know, like Earl Thomas and some of the other guys that, you know, Richard Sherman, all these, these dudes, you know, came up and gave me a hug and were like, tell me how proud they were of me and everything. It was cool. And that was my one experience of the anthem um, at a football game as a player. And uh, a year later, you know, we're in the middle of the election. You know, it's it's Donald versus Hillary and everybody's freaking out. You got to take a side. And it's just like, hate, 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 you know, anger, anger, anger. Um, nobody listening. 
nobody caring to to take anybody's uh, perceptions or experience into account. All that matters is what you feel as an individual. And you know, Colin starts sitting on the bench during the preseason first couple of preseason games, and and uh, of course that was a lightning rod for the NFL. And uh, I had my initial reactions. You know, I, I just I was upset. I was hurt by it because I was like, "What does this guy know?" I mean, he didn't. He didn't fight for his country. He doesn't know what that flag represents. Um, he didn't understand. But at the same time, like what we just talked about through this podcast was your experiences, you know, and your individual experiences and what like sacrifice means to you um, and what you've gone through. Like, I, I have no idea what that man has gone through or what anybody else has gone through except for me. I can't fully relate. I can try to empathize and listen, but I don't, I don't really know. And, uh, and I had to tell that to myself again, you know, even after all this stuff I've seen, all these places I've been in the world and cultures I've worked alongside, uh, you still got to remind yourself of that. It's just a, it's a human reaction, you know, to be judgmental and to have feelings. And that's okay. You can have them. You just, it's how you process them that matters. And I, uh, I slowed myself down and, and decided, you know what, like, I don't really know what I'm talking about right here. You know, I just know how I feel. And in the midst of this, I had a bunch of publications reach out and, you know, uh, cable news networks that, that, uh, that wanted to, that wanted to, to have me on and talk about this issue, you know, and I think they wanted me to have an opinion, take a side, you know, dig in and, and, and make some good content for us so we can sell more advertising spots or something. And I was like, man, this is just not helping. This is the problem. Um, so I agreed to finally, I finally agreed to write for the Army Times because I knew, well, first of all, no offense to the Army Times, but not a lot of people read it. Uh, not a lot of people in the military read it. Um, but I knew they'd let me write whatever I wanted. And, uh, and I'd get to see the final edit. And so I wrote this open letter to Colin, just explaining my, some of my experiences, why I feel the way that I feel, but also like letting him know that, hey, like, I don't know what it's like to be you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and just, um, continue to judge somebody that I don't understand, uh, because I don't know them and, and assume that I've got all the answers or that I know what sacrifice means to everybody just because sacrifice means a specific thing to me. doesn't mean the same thing for everybody else. And the letter went out the next morning and it went, viral and a lot of it was you know i'm thankful that it did and a lot of it was because people like like you marty like the the sports journalists are the reason this thing got out there this thing got shared across our country and by the end of the day um i, w I was in the the green room at nfl network they wanted to have me on and do an interview about it and i was like all right you know but i'm, I'm not going down any rabbit holes i'm not taking sides here i'm just talking and i'm in the green room and colin's publicist calls me and said that he wanted to meet the next day down in San Diego. And I was like, San Diego. And they're like, yeah, he's, they're playing the chargers tomorrow in the final preseason game. And, uh, you know, he, he'd love to meet with you before the game and just talk about this whole thing. I was like, wow. Okay. That's, that sounds important. So, uh, I went down there, you know, from Los Angeles to San Diego. And we sat Colin and I went along with Eric Reed. We sat in the lobby of the team hotel um, in the Horton Plaza, in the you know, right in front of the big windows, people are walking by, snapping selfie photos because Colin's 
at this point, you know, the last couple of weeks, like everybody knew who he was way more than when he was a Super Bowl quarterback. Um, and he's got the Afro and like, you know, it's just, he's a, he's a, he's a very iconic, uh, person already, you know, and we just talked about our experiences. We talked about, you know, our personal backgrounds. We talked about, you know, how he's got military and, uh, in his childhood friends and in his family. And, you know, it's not about that for him. Um, and even police officers, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's a whole long story to get into the details of that conversation. But, but what really came out of that, the end was like, all right, Colin sort of asking me, you know, what else do you think I can do? Because I'm not going to stand. I've, I've pledged to not stand until I see things change, you know? And, uh, you know, I tried to get him to, to figure out measurable goals of what change looked like and all that. But it was just, it was early on and it was, you know, it was a lot. I think it blew up more than he thought it would. Um, and he said, is there another way I can protest? That's another thing I can do that that's not going to hurt you or people in the military. And I said, Colin, like, no matter what you do, people are going to be offended. Even if you stood with your hand on your heart today, people are going to be upset about what you did last week. And they're never going to let that go. And that's just, there's just people that are going to be that way. And you got to accept that, man. It's like you're, you're trying to do something that's very important to you and to a lot of people. And you have to accept there is no perfect gesture. You know, no one's going to, no one's going to, everybody is not going to just, you know, bend and be okay with it. It's never going to happen. Um, and he said, well, is there anything else that you think is important? Like when it comes to, you know, paying respects to the military and whatnot. And I said, well, I said, first of all, I think what's important personally is that you're alongside your teammates. I think sitting back isolated on the bench, you know, makes it look a little bit like maybe it's about, it's about you or that you're just like, you're sitting this one out as far as like, you're not being involved. You're not uh, participating at all. And I don't think that's what your message is about. It's about participating. It's about making a difference, taking action. Um, and, you know, cause his whole message, just so everyone's clear, is about, was about, you know, racial injustice, uh, police brutality. And in his eyes, you know, the mistreatment of people of color, uh, throughout our nation's history and even into today. And, uh, I said, well, if, you know, and then he thought that was a good idea alongside the teammates. He's like, well, what, what do I do? And I said, well, I mean, I think the only thing you really can do is probably kneel. Um, and as far as I can think, I, I don't know if there's ever been a time where kneeling has been seen as disrespectful, the act of kneeling. I mean, usually it's a sign of reverence, uh, whether it's a proposal or kneeling before uh, royalty uh, or, you know, a player's hurt on the field, they take a knee, you know, players take a knee before they, when they pray before a game. Um, and, and, and even in the military, you know, when we're at Arlington, we take a knee in front of a, a fallen brother's grave to pay respects. Um, so it's a respectful gesture in my opinion, you know, but I don't speak for the veteran community. That's just what I feel. And he thought that that was more powerful than sitting and, uh, you know, he actually asked me if I would kneel with him that night uh, at the game. And I told him, I, I, I can't do that. You know, I have, I, I don't feel the same way as you about everything, you know, and I, I don't disagree with you fighting for this. And I think a lot of what you're saying is important, important conversation. And I do agree with 
some of the things um, that you that you believe in, but not everything, and that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything. Um, but if you do, if you if you take a knee, uh, I will stand next to you um, with my hand on my heart, you know. But, but I'll do that. And uh, and that that happened that night, just a few hours later. You know, it was Military Appreciation Day. There were the Navy SEALs jumping into the stadium. It's just a, a few days before 9-11. And um, we had an African-American sailor sing the national anthem in uniform. I mean, it was, it, was, it was interesting is the best way to describe it. It was a very interesting day. And as soon as the anthem starts playing, you know, you could feel 70,000 eyeballs on you. Or on Colin, I should say, waiting to see what he's going to do. And as soon as the song starts playing, he takes me and it was a weird pause for a minute where people were, you know, there was just the anthem playing, people singing. And then, you know, kind of one by one, some booze started rolling in and then they built a little bit. And, you know, for me, it was a learning experience, too, of just like, What'd you learn? even with that, you know, even with, with, with me standing next to him and him, him adjusting in some way for a lot of people, it just didn't matter, you know? And I don't think they would have cheered if he would have stood with his hand on his heart. Uh, I don't know what would have happened. Um, but you know, that, that was a, that was an important day for, for me. And I think a lot of our country and, um, it was quickly forgotten because it's not uh, divisive. <laughs> it was a unifying moment. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was one of the most important things I've ever been involved in. I think. Brother, I can't thank you enough for your time, perspective, uh, amazing storytelling, and uh, friendship. I appreciate it. Y'all need to understand something. I was I was Nate Boyer before people knew about Nate Boyer. And, uh, you're doing amazing things, brother. I just can't thank you enough, man. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for, for being such a good person. Thank you so much, Marty. I appreciate it, brother. Let's keep in touch, dude. What an interesting person and what an interesting life for such a young man. Nate, as you heard him say, he's only 38 at this point. But I love his perspective, and you guys have heard me say it so many times. We, I just don't believe that we respect our freedom enough in this country. And for a guy who fought for it, a guy who saw bloodshed right beside him and had to experience that, the perspective that he has on what we have as Americans – I think is wonderful, and it's appreciated that I got to hear it. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and maybe it made you think a little bit about yourself and about the great freedoms we have in this nation. We can be anything we want to be if we have kindness and passion and drive and desire and uh, opportunity. Uh, we do have that, and I'm so appreciative of Nate for reminding me of that and, and all of his insight. He's a great dude. He's been a great friend for a while. Like I say, I did a story on Nate back in the summer of 2015, and that may be on YouTube somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can't find it when, uh, when we post the podcast here, but thank you guys so much for listening. Travis, thanks so much for getting Nate on here. We've been chasing him for a while now. Uh, Louise Cornetta is the person who decided that we should have this podcast, and Travis and I are so appreciative to have this platform to get to tell stories that we find to be interesting. It's awesome because we can flush it out, and it can be an hour long. And other than the subject we're interviewing, having a real life and going on to do other things, nobody's stopping us. 
And that's a very rare luxury and something that we appreciate so much. It wouldn't matter if you guys weren't listening. So thank you guys so much for your investment in the Marty Smith's America podcast, not the Marty's Miss America podcast, the Marty Smith's America podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Go to iTunes and review us. Go to iTunes and click that uh, the stars, whatever you think it is, whatever you believe the, the rating should be, rate it because it, it helps us. It helps us get better. It helps us give you what you want. And as I always do, I want to close this podcast by thanking our military. Uh, that's been a theme today, certainly chatting with Nate. I'm so appreciative to live in this nation. And we are free for a reason. We are free because of folks like Nate who voluntarily, voluntarily fight for our freedom and defend our freedom all around the world. Thank you so much to you guys. Uh, that's the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume 43. We'll try to do better next time around. We appreciate y'all. We'll chat with you then.